This is Maine Coast Doc Talk, a podcast bringing you the latest news and stories from Maine's working waterfronts. This podcast is brought to you by the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association. I'm your host, Ben Martens. It's Friday, June 3rd. Welcome to Maine Coast Doc Talk. Uh, today we are going to be doing, uh, listening to an interview with Barton Seaver, who's an author, a chef. He actually was Esquire Chef of the Year in 2009 for a restaurant that he had down in Washington, D.C., but he is a recent addition to Maine. He moved here a couple of years ago. He's been writing cookbooks that have really focused on seafood and the idea of how to make seafood more accessible to the rest of us who aren't you know, professional chefs. And uh, he's just released a brand new cookbook called Two of By Sea. So we're gonna be chatting with him uh, later, a little bit later on in the program and learning about that book, talking a little bit about what it's like working with fishermen, talking about seafood and, and how to get people to eat more seafood. Uh, but before then, I'm sitting here with Monique and we're gonna go over a couple things that have happened in the news. So Monique, what's going on? Oh, not too much, Ben. And actually, instead of an article today, I'm hoping to direct people to our awesome website, MainCoastFishermen'sAssociation.org, where we just put up a post of 10 awesome and fishy things that you can do around Maine this summer. Uh, they're pretty fantastic items, I believe. And if people want to find out exactly what they are, they should probably head over to the website. Yeah, that was self-serving. Yeah, uh, it was a little self-serving, but you know, what are you going to do? So I, I actually, while, while we're on that though, I think it's kind of a cool thing to be thinking about is because we get so many visitors to the state of Maine. Tons of visitors. And they show up and they say, how do I have a real experience and experience that coastal community? They always come for the lobster, but there's a lot of other things to be thinking about when you come visit Maine. So I know we've got the blog post up there. Are there a couple that you want to just highlight that might be something cool that someone might not think about when they come visit Maine to be looking for? Sure. Um, a couple of things. One, they could take a look. Uh, one of the items mentions Experience Maritime Maine and all of the awesome festivals. I want to say, I think I've heard before that Maine has over like 40 oyster festivals or something that happen along the coast during the summertime because there's so many little towns with so many different oyster farms. So there's a number of different ways you could go experience that. And then I'm going to point out my favorite thing during the summer, which is the Casco Bay Tuna Club, which happens the last full week of July on Bailey Island. It's a good way for people to come and uh, see some fish, sharks, bluefin tuna. They come in at random times, so it's really just luck of the draw. But uh, it's a pretty cool tournament. It's one of the longest running fishing tournaments on the East Coast. So That's really cool. And I, I came down and visited you last year. Last year, year yep. Uh, and it was such a cool experience because it was a beautiful, sunny day. It was one of the first days of the tournament, and people were catching tuna. Yeah, so, we had over 13 tuna, I think, come in last summer or during that week, and that's pretty pretty excellent. And it's down on the on an open dock area. It's down near Cook's Lobster House. and Cook's Lobster and Ale House now. And ale, yes. Yep, lots need of the good ale. beers on tap. Um, a lot of Maine beers on yes, tap. Another great ones. thing for people to do when they come to Maine is drink Maine brews. Um, but I don't know that most people have ever, you know, most people have never seen a tuna. No, nope, definitely they, not. And the closest they've come to it is looking at it in a can in a grocery store. Yep, great. Um, but a bluefin tuna is one of the most beautiful Gorgeous. fish that you've ever seen. And so on that blog post, we actually have got a picture that I took uh, of a tuna. 
that is going to uh, that you can check out. You can see you can see the beautiful color, the size. I mean, what was the size of the biggest tuna that won the tournament uh, last, last year? Last year, I think it was over eight hundred pounds, caught by Keith Jordan, Bailey, and Bella. So yep. a two hundred pound fish that is just all, 800. Uh, sorry, 800, eight hundred. Sorry, eight hundred. Yeah, I meant eight. I don't know why I said two hundred pounds. Uh, eight hundred pound fish that is pure muscle. I mean, it is. It's beautiful, beautiful thing and delicious. So um, yep. I definitely think that's a great thing to highlight. We've got some pictures up, um, and hopefully, you know, if that's somebody is in town or in the mid coast area at that time of year, awesome, awesome thing. Yeah. Uh, anything else you want to? Uh, nope. I just want to point out, um, in, you know, it is really hard to experience the fishing industry the same way that people might experience uh, the agriculture industry. Um, you can very easily go help and work out on a farm, and it's much more difficult to help and work out on a boat for a number of different reasons. So, you know, for people coming to Maine this summer to explore, to, you know, keep an open mind about different ways to experience the industry and that it doesn't necessarily have to be from the boat, but there's a number of different things going on. So take a look at our awesome 10 things. Yeah. I mean, the the best way to experience the fisheries is by eating the fish. Yes. I think. Number one. Um, but that's uh, actually, and this is something maybe we can talk about at, on a later podcast, but you know, growing up in New England, my parents took me to like petting zoos and farms, right? Like we would go to a, what was called the friendly farm in New Hampshire. And yep. Pet Gray these, animal right? farm in Maine. Yep. And, it, and it just builds a, a different type of understanding of what people are doing on farms and, and that connection. And we really don't have that yeah. uh, in, in Maine and with our fisheries. So yeah. um, that's kind of interesting. So yeah, go check it out and uh, check out the other list of 10 things that we've got on our blog of stuff you should do while you're visiting and experiencing and enjoying Maine this summer. Um, so last podcast, we talked a little bit about the scientific trawl survey and the process that was going on in the groundfish fishery. And, uh, that's still going on, but there's been another hiccup in survey data that I just wanted to hit on another article from the Boston globe. Uh, but as we've got multiple different fisheries that exist throughout new England, a lot of those fisheries are under one trawl survey, which is the one we had talked about in the previous podcast where they're behind schedule uh, because of some boat repairs. One of the, the I don't, it's not only the largest because I believe the lobster industry surpassed it, but one of the largest fisheries in the United States is the scallop fishery. And they actually use a camera system that they haul behind a boat to look at beds of scallops to see how many are out in the ocean. And they lost the camera off the back of the boat. I did not know that. That's kind of not funny, but a little bit funny. It's a little bit funny until you hear the price tag. Oh, yeah. That's the part that's probably ridiculous. $450,000. Does the GoPro not do the trick? No, apparently oh. not. No. <laughs> uh, but I, I think that that is, uh, you know, so it's obviously a huge issue that they lost this camera on the bottom of the ocean. They're going to go try and find it. I guess they can, you know, use some gear to try and haul it up. Uh, well worth the effort to go out and try and find it. But it's, it's raised a lot of concerns from the scallop industry, which is a very influential and, um, you know, there's a lot of money flowing into the scallop industry. This type of a loss can definitely impact the stock assessment. But at the same time, you know, the calls from the scallop industry are like, well, why don't we have a backup camera? It's like, well, because it's four hundred and fifty thousand yeah, dollars. That's, that's why. Um, but Is this like a you had one job thing? <laughs> like did someone yeah. not finished tying up the zip tie or I have no clue what happened. It's a little bit unclear. It's like they tell the story and they're like in the article and they say, 
So we were towing, and then the line went slack. <laughs> it's like you never want the line to go it's slack. It's a bad thing, right? bad sign. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, that's that'll be an ongoing crisis, I'm sure, for that fishery. It's it's not funny. It's going to impact a lot of businesses, um, but at the same time, it's like, oh my goodness, really? Like one more thing. The scientists are, are having a rough couple of months in New England for fisheries, sure. but um, so those are those are the. Uh, that was the, the article that I just wanted to highlight building off of our previous discussion. Um, is there anything else we want to touch base on before we hop into the interview? Nope, I think we're all set. Cool, so now we're gonna be moving into the interview that I did with Barton last week. We sat down in Barton's kitchen uh, in Freeport, Maine, and chatted about his new book, Two If I See. Uh, we'll also have links to uh, be able to purchase his book and a little bit more information on our website, uh, not right away. The book will be on there right away, but I also told Barton that I would try cooking one of his recipes. Uh, it's going to be a stew. I haven't done it yet. I need a, a chili. Is he gonna be there to help you? No, I'm gonna do it on my own. I'm gonna go out and try and do it by myself. Okay. So maybe I'll make uh, the staff try and eat it. Nope. Uh, no, <laughs> no it'll be we'll delicious. try it, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. It'll be okay. I'll make sure everything's Follow cooked. the recipe. Indeed. So uh, we'll go into that interview and then Monique and I will be back to uh, discuss the discussion. Awesome. Yeah, discuss the discussion. Barton Siever, welcome to Maine Coast Doc Talk. Thanks for inviting us to your home and to talk with us about sustainable seafood, your book, Two If By Sea, and uh, everything else. So thanks for having us. Thanks. Pleasure to be here with you. And so uh, I want to give you an opportunity to introduce yourself to <laughs> our listening world. Who are you? Why are we talking to you? What's going on? Uh, my name is Barton Seaver. I'm a recovering chef and restaurateur. I made my way out of restaurant industry uh, into sustainable seafood world via National Geographic and a few other NGOs. I uh, found my way uh, to Harvard, where I'm now looking at sustainability through the lens of public health, though I have never fully left the culinary world, and I'm still an author just publishing my sixth book, Two If by Sea. Sixth book. And so this... Uh, it, looking, judging by the cover and reading through it, it looks like you have three books that are very similar in their makeup. And so you want to just hit on that that string sure. of books and the names of those books because I love them all. Sure. Uh, thanks. Uh, the Red, White, and Blue series, it's uh, f started with For Cod and Country, my first book, uh, Where There's Smoke, a tome dedicated to gr grilling, my love of smoke and all things vegetables basically on the grill. Uh, and then Two If By Sea, uh, all of them focusing really on, on vegetables and seafood. Uh, two If By Sea mostly uh, focusing on domestic seafood and diversification, really looking at the opportunities we have to uh, act as consumers, uh, to act sustainably, not just uh, put sustainability as a burden on producers. But the uh, most fun part of all these, these three books is uh, the trio of which uh, I have uh, created in collaboration with my wife who is the designer behind all of them, page to page, cover to cover, everything in between she has done, um, and Carrie Ann, her name. Uh, we're a brilliant partnership. Well, and so I, I'm, uh, just as a quick aside, I had them open up in my office today, and some of the staff came through and was looking at them and just kept on reflecting at how beautiful the books were, and that they were almost more like coffee table books at a certain level, <laughs> because they're like, oh, you could just leave this out and leaf through these for the beautiful pictures and the layout. Like, it's, it's they're very um, beautiful books, as well as, as actually useful books, nice. which is nice. She does um, a really nice job, but that I think that's a part of uh, what they're trying to communicate, is a sense of place, is a sense of um, 
uh, hospitality, you know, in, sure. in a way that the book feels like an invitation to our home because it is a very intimate personal document. Uh, and I think that is a lot of what I also try and bring to fisheries is that, that notion. I, I think this is why you and I are friends and see so many things uh, eye to eye uh, is that we really try and bring it down to that human level. Well, uh, and so before I, I want to spend a lot of time chatting about the, the book, but um, let's, let's back up and talk about why you – uh, a recovering chef and now author are writing books about sustainable seafood. Uh, you came from DC. That's, you know, close to the ocean, I guess, but it's, it's not necessarily a, a coastal area. So why are you doing this? I grew up 20 miles from Chesapeake Bay. Yeah. Uh, now seafood's always been a big part of my life. Just, uh, my dad, who was the cook of the family was very interested in seafood. And we, you know, the most memorable feasts of my youth were, based all around seafood. Uh, I spent my summers down in the Chesapeake Bay and the tributaries of uh, the Patuxent River and uh, there got to know seafood uh, and got to know an environmental baseline of what I thought uh, you know, was available to us. And, you know, just this morning I was talking to my dad on the phone and he was lamenting at the price of a bushel of crabs uh, you know, which is somewhere in the hundreds right now. And, and I remember them being free only but for the cost of my labor. Uh, and that, that no longer exists anymore. Uh, and so thinking about sustainability from even my own viewpoint uh, of how things have changed in our world um, and how I as a chef can communicate those stories mm -hmm. through picture, through recipe, through the interaction, the intimacy that comes uh, with food, I think is, is really a joy and a blessing. And one of the things that they really, we really try and do through the books um, is to bring sustainability back to the personal level with people uh, as it so is uh, in my own experience yeah and I, I think that that's been one of the, the great things that I've heard you talk about over you know in, whether it's you're giving a, a talk or just in our personal conversations it's how do you make the connection between the consumer their family the fishermen that are catching it and the sustainability of, of the system and um, I, I used to kind of tie the, the fishermen side back into it you have the great story that you tell of one of your restaurants where you couldn't get the fish that you were supposed to get, and it was sailfish, um, and you ended up selling that out. And I, I'd love for you to tell that story if you remember the <laughs> sure. one that I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, well, it's funny. You know, I'd, you could almost substitute any species into this story uh, because in the, in the two years I was running this restaurant, two-plus years, we served over 150 different species of seafood. And we had a, a simple relationship with fishermen that uh, if you caught it, we would buy it. And we were big enough uh, and busy enough that I could, when I meant that, I meant I could buy your boat. You know, I mean, I could buy your trip. Yep. Um, yep. I could take 100,000 pounds at a time. I mean, it was, it was incredible how much fish I went through. So anyway, uh, the Thursday night, busy night, we had 700 dinners. We were going to rage through that evening. And uh, uh, my fish hadn't arrived by FedEx, a couple of guys down in the Gulf that we had been working with. And I hadn't arrived, hadn't arrived. And, you know, waiting for my fish and it doesn't come. And finally arrives and I open it up and I was like, oh my, all right, what is that? God, you know, and of course my most gentlemanly chef uh, language was uh, very kind and courteous on the phone when I called up Michael to ask him just exactly what he, th what was happening. He said, well, uh, you know, we were going out fishing on the reef. We were going to catch black, black fin or wahoo or mahi or, you know, some tunas or whatever, barracuda, but we didn't have a good day fishing. So we sent you all the leftover bait. And I didn't want to leave you an alert, so we just sent you what we had. And that was the bait. And I was like, great story. Okay. 
fine. You know, hung up the phone, looked at it. Okay, I got 85 pounds of flying fish on my hands. What do I do with it? Well, it looks a lot like a herring. Pink, oily flesh, mm-hmm. you know, beautiful, pristine, uh, you know, taut in its texture. Okay, fine. Roll mops. Yeah, we all know this. Great. Okay, a little bit of uh, you know, tarragon, a little bit of Meyer lemon zest, olive oil marinades, Roman rosemary skewers, slow smolder them over a orchard wood fire, serve them over some uh, braised zucchini and summer squash and a juniper and Vidalia onion broth. Uh, wow, okay, cool. You know, I mean, that's great food. Wait, what was the fish again? It doesn't even matter anymore. Um, you know, that's what I sold was experience. Um, you know, and in that particular case, I watched every single server walk up to the table and bounce up and down telling them the story of, oh, my God, you're never going to guess what happened today. You know, they, we, they didn't have a good day fishing. They sent everybody, blah, 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 you know, and just on and on. And they were so excited because they had a story to sell, mm-hmm. to sell. Uh, that's what they're doing at the tables. And they were creating relationships with their customers. You know, and it was, a, it was fulfilling for them as servers. It was fulfilling for me as a chef to offer that. And, you know, we sold out of bait at $24 a plate by 7 o'clock that night. And I still have people asking me after it. And, yeah, it, it's it, it's just one of those funny things that uh, because we had set ourselves up um, differently than other restaurants where the menu wasn't built on expectations, it was built on experiences. And the difference there is when you expect that a restaurant has salmon, shrimp, scallops, swordfish, and you know maybe a fillet of the day, which is scrod. Yep. Okay. If that's what you expect, then that's the burden we place upon our ocean. It's a very limited demand. But if you expect a restaurant is built on experience, I'm going to go in there and buy what they have. Well, that trickles down in the economy, not trickles down, it rages down in the economy to the point where the fisherman is no longer told what we are willing to and not willing to pay for as consumers, but rather the fishermen and the oceans are simply asked what they are able to provide. And that is a radically different economic system than what we currently have governing fisheries. Um, And just that shift that's something that we as consumers are wholly in control of. Before we get into sustainable anything of the science, this is sustainable use. This is uh, sustainable expectations of what we think we deserve from the oceans. And so I think that's a really empowering message about my books and about you know, the work that I try and do is, is show people that this is not about complicated science. This is literally just about shifting the lens through which we view uh, the world around us. Well, and I think that's actually the, the transition that I wanted to make was I, uh, I read through uh, over the weekend your, your newest book and was really uh, struck by the storytelling that goes along with a lot of the different dishes that you have outlined throughout it. And it's got beautiful pictures, but there's also a lot of, of stories about you and your, your family, your life that start to go into the pieces and it becomes less and less about you get a piece of codfish. This is how you cook it. Um, and I, so I just wanted to hear a little bit about you from, you know, the process of how you develop the cookbook. And, you know, just in my reflections of it, I was reading through it. I have one cookbook that I rely on, and it's the joy of cooking. And I love it because I can read through it. And every time I read it, 
I learned something new that I can apply to numerous dishes. Mm -hmm. And I felt as though that was something that I was getting out of this book as well. Uh, And so I'd love to just hear a little bit about the process that you went through, you know, third really big cookbook at this point. Uh, You know, how do you how do you get to the spot where you developed 205C? Well, thanks for uh, just (laughs) aligning 205C with Joy of Cooking. Uh, (laughs) Obviously, that is the the book anything would hope to be. the process of it is is looking not at you know what what ingredients can I pair, but rather what what is it about various categories of ingredients that make them work well with other categories. So if you think about salmon, not as salmon, but orange flesh fish, what are the general qualities of this? Silken smooth texture, fatty, rich with oil, uh, resilient to overcooking uh, in most cases. Um, you know, a, a very broad flavor that matches well to acute flavors such as Pernod or lemon juice, cool herbs such as dill. Uh, so if you think about it as a category, orange flesh fish, well, okay, well, I got five species of wild. I got farmed that are very different from all over the planet. I got Arctic char. I've got rainbow trout. I've, you know, you go, oh, all of a sudden you got a whole lot of options. Well, all of a sudden you're not looking at the fish counter in the same way. You're also not looking at your pantry in the same way in that we're no longer a slave to the recipe, but rather we are uh, coming to this as knowledgeable, not necessarily creators. You know, you don't, you don't have to, I don't have to teach you to be as creative as a chef. Just have to give you a little bit of confidence enough to know that garlic, olive oil, and lemon juice is pretty much going to work out well. You know, you, you're pretty, you're it pretty much it, good to go. It usually makes everything delicious. And, uh, and so with that sense, it's sort of mixing uh, that kitchen confidence with uh, a, a, the broad sense of with seafood specifically. Buying what's best at the market is 90% of good cooking. Um, and so it's sort of marrying those two ideas together into uh, a successful outcome. And so you, know, you live in Maine now, which uh, we love. You've got a lot of great seafood in Maine. How do you talk to people about that buying experience? Because that is something that I've, I've found is very difficult for a lot of people is the experience buying fish is different than what we go through in buying meat or poultry. Mm-hmm. Um, and you do a little bit of that in the book, but can you expand upon that in the, the process that someone should go through as they're hitting the fish counter and thinking about what they're going to be cooking that night or for the next couple of nights? Um, the first thing that you, you should do is, is buy fish from a person, not from a place. Uh, and that means, you know, go to Harbor and you know, look the person in the eye, figure out their name and, and ask them what they recommend. Um, you know, once you create a personal relationship with people, they're not going to steer you wrong. Um, unless, you know, they just don't know what they're talking about. But in Maine here, we've got the luxury of having people that really do know what they're talking about. And you walk into a Shaw's, you walk into Hannaford's, and there's some really great quality products coming right out of the Gulf of Maine available right there for you. And if you don't know how to look for great seafood, guess what? The person's putting it on the counter. They know what they're doing. And so if you buy a fish from a person, you're buying, you're going to get a good quality product. Um, what's so funny about buying fish in Maine is that it is so completely different than buying fish anywhere else. And that's even inclusive of the Gulf of Maine. I mean, you get down to Boston, buying fish is not what it is in buying in Maine. Um, even though they have just as much access to the resilient, you know, to the, to the 
splendors of these waters, um, you know, there it's a commoditized market where you're getting products so far removed from the boat that you have no idea who caught them. Um, and yet here in Maine, you know, I can hear that my neighbor's going out for shrimp trawl <laughs> for a population survey and that Harbor Fish is going to have a couple hundred pounds later today and, whoa, you know, let the multitudes descend and get there before you can, you know, get your own. It's a, the process is very different and it is far more intimate here. Uh, it is far more sort of neighborhood, uh, you know, and that's built upon the lobster fishery is, is I think the, what it comes down to is the fact that everyone in Maine knows a lobsterman. Uh, everyone's kids goes to school with someone's kid, you know, someone who's on a boat. Uh, and I think that there is that closeness of association that really matters here uh, and that we do see seafood as the product of our neighbors and of our own community. That makes a big difference in the way that we, we view it. Um, but that said, I think it also isolates us in many ways because we don't see necessarily the outside external factors that are weighing upon the industry as, as a larger entity, uh, the economic factors that have driven uh, local guys uh, down uh, and that put pressures on them economically. So in some ways, it, it's a beautiful little world up here, but in some ways, it's also too little of a world mm -hmm. uh, to get a, a really true picture of what's going on. Well, and I think that, that that actually ties into, so you have in your introduction, you talk about the uh, unfamiliar species, which I, I liked that term as opposed to some of the other terms that get turned around for those type of fish. And in Maine, it does seem as though there aren't unfamiliar species because people have been catching them and eating them and dealing with them for years and years and years, generations a lot of the time. And so it's, it's how do you get people to start accepting and thinking about those unfamiliar species. It's probably through that personal aspect that you're talking about, whether it's at the fish counter or you know, some other introduction where you can have a personal relationship and talk about the preparation and what that species might be like which is something that seems to be really important when you're developing the recipes. It's like, okay, mm -hmm. this might not be the exact species, but is it like something yeah. else? Well, then you get into that category of species. Yep. You know, and, and I think this is very important when it comes to whitefish. Uh, you know, with salmon, you're pretty much across the board. That, that's a fairly easy category when it comes to orange flesh fish. When it comes to whitefish, though, you get really murky really quickly. Um, you know, because you can find MSC, Marine Stewardship, Marine Stewardship Council certified cod, just about anywhere. Right. And it's coming from the North Sea, and it's a great product worth supporting. Uh, but you can also find, you know, a few fillets coming from a truly beleaguered industry that's following all the rules, doing everything they're asked to do. Uh, you know, I can find that right down the street. But the sustainability measure isn't there uh you know, and then, well, you know, the cod is nine ninety nine a pound. Tilapia is a buck forty five. Yep. You know, I mean, how do you compete with that? And so all of a sudden you get into this truly diverse pool of offerings that are both that run the gamut from both uh, sustainable to truly unsustainable uh, from economic diversity uh, as well as sort of the cultural diversity in terms of applications and um I think this is where it's really important to begin to look at uh, species and recipes from a category perspective. Okay, I got flaky white flesh fish. 
I walk into the fishmonger and I say, okay, what's best? Oh, you know, I just landed with a whole bunch of pollock today. It's beautiful, translucent, near see-through, opalescent with this bluish gray tinge to it. But when you cook it up, it becomes this beautiful milky pearl white and just glimmering, glowing with this, you know, all this flavor as its fat sort of exudes out of it just a little bit, keeping all of its moisture. It's aromatic. I mean, it's a uh, very... Uh, you know, carnivorous species, vigorous species, and so it's got a little bit more oil than cod does. And oh man, it's just going to pair beautifully with your garlic, olive oil, and lemon. Okay, great. Well, then you feel empowered to actually buy that um, rather than trepidatious about, well, oh, what, what, how is that different? It's not about how it's different, it's about how it's similar. Hmm. Uh, and when you begin to look at fish through, okay, how are they similar? <laughs> ah, they're really very similar to a, a large degree. Um, and I think that also opens up your sustainability metrics also, because you can then apply, begin to apply, uh, I, I think your own value system to it. I think all too often we are told what sustainability is rather than asked, what is it that I as an individual would like to sustain? Mm -hmm. Uh, and in Maine, as, as we were talking about, that, that answer is far going to be far more intimate. It's going to be more closely associated. So to me, what am I trying to associate or what am I trying to sustain here? My neighbors. <laughs> I'm trying to sustain my neighbors. You know, to make it perfectly selfish, I'm trying to sustain the tax base and the quality of public schools. Uh, I'm trying to sustain the jobs in my community and my own home value. I mean, I can say that. It's perfectly legitimate to say that. And the way that I can do that is to go support my neighbor who's fishing for cod. Okay. Well, if that's my personal value, well, it, irregardless of what it is, I mean, whether it's an economic thing, whether it's an environmental uh, set of values, a civic set of values, whatever it is, you know, I think we have to let people uh, decide what they want to sustain and then apply those values at the point of purchase. And so to me, when I walk into a store, I say, oh, flaky white flesh fish. Okay, what's the local option that's giving the extra $1.50 at the dock to the men and women who are out there catching this stuff, trying to make a living, trying to keep waterfronts working, trying to keep their families above water and viable in their communities? Huh. Oh, it's dogfish today? Great. Dogfish it is on my menu tonight. And again, that gets back to sustainability as a consumer opportunity, not as a consumer um, burden and not as the burden of the producers, but rather looking at sustainability through the lens of, of, uh, of providence and, and of, of uh, profit and of prudence and of pride, um, looking at it really as, as a means that we have to use for, to engage with ourselves, with our own health, with our community, with the health of that community and with our environment and certainly to have a hand in shaping the health of our environments. Well, I, I love that. And I think that the idea of putting some of the, the ownership back onto those of us that are consuming in the decision-making process is great. And giving people the resources to be able to make some of those decisions and understand some of that, whether that's through cookbooks or different bases, you know, talking to people in the local communities. Um, I think that, you know, having a knowledge base and giving a people place to start that's easily accessible is, is crucial. And so I, I, act, I, I love these books. I give them away as presents because I think they're a great awesome. introduction for people into the fisheries world that I know and love. And it's easily accessible, which is 
a huge, huge place for us. Well, so, you know, at, at the end of the day, though, regardless of what you're talking about in fisheries, it all comes back down to, you know, to dinner. It does. You know, at, at the end of the day, people are fishing in order to put food on their tables or on ours. And I think when we look at it through such a lens, when we reduce it all down to, oh, dinner? I, I speak dinner. Cool. All of a sudden, we find a shared fluency, and therein, a piece of catfish dusted with Creole seasoning, sautéed in butter, and basted under the broiler with a little bit of you know fresh pats of butter and thyme until it's beautifully crusted golden brown on top and the spices aromatic jumping out of the oven and in throughout our house making us all mouths water. Woo! Cool. Wait, what are we talking about? <laughs> Just dinner. Just dinner. That's cool. That is cool. So you've got the book in front of you. Uh, we've dove kind of deep into some uh, awesome discussion around what seafood you should be doing and all these other pieces and sustainability, community. But let's talk about dinner. If you uh, have to go through this, you had to go through and you cooked all of these recipes, you had to understand them, experience them. Um, I've got a couple of quick questions. I want quick answers out of you. All right. So what in this book is your favorite recipe that you made while you were producing it? Uh, it's the technique. It's poilet technique. Searing a piece of fish, skin side down, and then adding butter and thyme to the pan and waiting for that butter to brown and spooning it over the fish fillet, spoon by spoon by spoon as it cooks slowly, basting. That's not a short answer, but it's a sexy one. <laughs> basting, depositing those caramelized butter salads all throughout that crisp skin, moistening that whole flesh as it sizzles down the sides. Just it sounds good. It looks good. Damn. Oh. And you actually posted a video on Facebook the other day I of did. you doing that. That was yeah. uh, pretty delicious. Uh, so uh, what about – so that was a technique – if you had to pick one of these species that you talk about in this book, what's what's the one that you like put up on the pedestal as your favorite one to go out and experience? Mackerel. Mackerel. Uh, it's long been one of my favorite species, um, but mackerel is it, it's cheap. It's incredibly accessible to us here. The quality is going to be better than that of almost anything else that we can find here in the Gulf of Maine. Uh, when smoked, it's as good of good an eat as is bacon. It just I'll just put it out there. I mean, it's as good. That's an aggressive stance. Well, you know, I, hey, I put a recipe in here. The, the you know the mackerel lettuce and tomato sandwich. Try it. Yeah. Try it. I mean, you're gonna love it. It's it's absolutely fabulous. And I'm lucky enough. That I get hungry. I can walk down to the end of the dock and just you know, catch some. Um, you know, let's please sustain that. I like that aspect of my of my neighborhood. Um, but uh, it also goes to a comment that you had last summer uh, when you were busy uh, being part of the, maybe even hosting the, uh, the tuna tournament down on Harpswell. And uh, you, you wanted to host a mackerel dinner because people just didn't get it. They don't get it. I mean, it's just yeah. you know, thousands of pounds of mackerel, you know, this three-day celebration and event where we're all eyes tuned on the oceans and we're looking at mackerel, handling it, every one of us, every day, but only as bait. It's not seen as worth more than 10 cents and only to cut up and chum into the water. When in fact, it's actually the, probably the healthiest thing we'll put on our plate throughout the course of the year. Uh, it is as delicious as is any other species, if not more so. And it represents a big part of the history of this place. It was the biggest fishery in Maine. It was part of a canning industry that lined this coast from Eastport down to Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Um, 
you know, it, it's a part of our heritage. It's part of our history, um, and it's a sustainable part of our present and our future. Uh, I love that. That is great. Uh, now, for those people who might be buying this book, thinking about cooking fish who aren't used to cooking fish or only ordering it in restaurants, where should they start? Well, start in this book, obviously. Cool. Uh, <laughs> what's, what's a great recipe to start with? Uh, my favorite thing that I, that I tell people to start with is, is slow roasting. And mm -hmm. this is putting your oven on at 275 degrees. Take a, a thicker piece of fish, even a thin one like mackerel or a thicker one like pollock, you know, something you're not necessarily familiar with but you know, isn't terribly scary to you. Throw it in the oven at 275 degrees, just nothing warm but olive oil and salt over top of it, and just let it sit. Just let it sit. Have a glass of wine. Sit back, relax, enjoy, talk to your husband, your wife, your partner, whoever. Oh, oh, the mackerel, oh yeah. Guess what, it's still perfectly juicy, moist, cooked perfectly all the way through. Takes 20 minutes, 25 minutes, maybe half hour for a thicker filet. But it's always perfect. It never aromatizes your kitchen or your house. It never puts any pressure on you to make sure it doesn't overcook because well, it'll take half an hour to overcook. Uh, you know, it allows you some time to sit and breathe and enjoy the process of dinner. Uh, you know, I mean, I have friends that cook that way five nights a week, and that's just what they do. They come home, they put a piece of fish in their oven, they go change their kids, they get them downstairs, they put some white rice onto a boil, steam up some broccoli, and half an hour later, dinner's on the table. Healthy, fresh, quick, delicious, incredibly healthy for us. That's, um, that's actually where I tend to start. Uh, when I'm uh, not in the mood to think about food, you know, when dinner is uh, dinner needs to be on the table, that's the way I the way I, the way I start. And so the last question I have for you is, what we're trying to do to pair with this podcast is, I'm going to take one of these recipes and I'm going to make it, and you know, blog about that experience. Uh, what should I? What recipe should I take out of this book, and cook? over the weekend uh, well you know because just because I laid it out there the mackerel BLT the smoked mackerel uh, tomato and, and and lettuce sandwich so I feel like I need something a little bit more intense right. with right. with some cooking involved. okay well uh, I will try that one I'll put that to you on Tuesday night then, okay because right. that's that's just stop by home and yeah stop by the store on your way home um, I'm gonna say one of the stews Hmm. So uh, in here I've got uh, a number of different ones from Booyah base to a, a Virginia stew that I just crab and flounder and clams, things in my native waters. Um, so I'm going to say one of those. You know, from pick a stew. Okay. Pick a stew. I'm going to go okay, Chiapino. It's the classic stew of the West Coast, San Francisco, and its origin. Uh, serve it along. You know, it's tomato-based with red bell peppers and red wine in there, hearty spices like rosemary into which is simmered, nice chunks of thick uh, fish, use shark or clams, mussels. All go, right. Go find a, a mixture of things that challenge you as a seafood eater and uh, throw them in there all under the guise of the seafood stew, the chipino, and, and tell me how you think. I, I will definitely do that. That sounds like a fun weekend project. It's supposed to be rainy this weekend, so I think a stew will fit nicely on a Sunday afternoon. So Barton, thank you so much for taking the time and chatting with us about the new book. Uh, it's beautiful. You and your wife great dynamic duo did a fantastic job with this one and um where can people find it if they want to go pick up a copy uh independent bookstores everywhere as well as online and uh 
Yeah, anywhere fine books are sold. Fine books are sold. Well, thank you again, Barton. I really appreciate it. Thanks, And Barton. hopefully we'll see you soon. Take good care. So, Monique, you got to listen to the interview I did with Barton last week. What'd you think? Thought it was awesome. I really like a lot of the things Barton has to say. The one thing he didn't say that I've always appreciated, I saw him speak at Harvard, oh my gosh, like five years ago, he spoke with Paul Greenberg and a few other people, and he said, you know, everybody knows vegetables come from farmers, and people tend to think fish comes from the ocean. So there's this huge disconnect, and, and sometimes we forget the fishermen, which, of course, you and I know how important part of the uh, story they are. So, you know, I, I really like to think about that. And, you know, with his cookbooks and stuff and making seafood accessible, I, I hope that, you know, people do experiment more with fish and try new recipes and, you know, think about where they're getting their product and the fishermen who catch it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great point. I've heard Barton speak several times, and as you can tell by listening to the interview, I'm friends with Barton. I you know, really respect and admire a lot of what he's been able to accomplish, being able to make the transition from chef to writer to TV star. And you know, he's really become this fantastic advocate for fishermen and seafood. And uh, one of the other things that you didn't mention in this interview that he often says is, Seafood is the only food that has food in the label, right? Yeah, that's um, a good point. And it's, it's just something that we often forget is that seafood is an important part of our diet. We should be eating more of it. Uh, and he's that, that conduit to getting people to experience and eat more local seafood on a regular basis. So Agreed. I was really happy that he was willing to sit down and chat with us about his new book. Um, I love it. I was a huge fan of that book and reading through it. Uh, was a great experience Two for if me. Be, so. If by sea, correct? That's Two if by sea is yep. that book. Uh, the first book, which is also a must read, is for cod and country. Yeah, I think I have that one. Yep. Uh, and he did another one that I actually don't have yet, which is the grill book. Yep. Um, uh, the smoke one. Where there's smoke. Yes. And uh, that one I'm gonna have to pick up, but I I most I you got a ga gas grill and I flick it on and I throw burgers on it. Yeah. I'm pretty simple. Yeah. So. But. Um, so that's our podcast for this week. Monique, thanks for sitting down with me. Is there anything that we want to um, push on our, our listeners for? Nope. I would just add one more thing, and that that is Barton always talks about eating a variety of seafood. And, you know, I would reiterate that too. Try lots of different kinds of fish. Find out what's in season near you. Always choose Maine if you can. That's obviously our first choice. And Obviously. Obviously. You know, try some American Place and other products. Yeah. Yeah. Be creative. Be creative. Get out there and explore. So it's thanks, everybody. Uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks. We're going to, our next interview is going to be with Nick Batista, who is going to be talking to us about marine spatial planning, which sounds boring, but it's pretty interesting to dig into and, and think about the impacts that it could have on our uh, coastal marine ecosystem and industries. So thanks.